Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sandra. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Genomics and the Future of Gastrointestinal or GI Cancer Treatments. Today's program is a collaborative effort between many cancer organizations and many very specific GI um, cancer organizations. And it's because of that collaboration that we have, and your interest in the program today, that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. We have 410 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. You come from both rural and urban and suburban areas, and we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, France, India, Poland, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's really a credit to you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us, and this is a bit of a global call, actually. Today's program is supported by Bayer Oncology and Loxell Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. We have really wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Al Benson. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Laurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson is going to be presenting an overview of the treatment of gastrointestinal or GI cancers. He's going to also present understanding GI cancer genomic profile before you begin treatment and during treatment, and specific examples of how genomic testing directs treatment decisions for colon cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Uh, to introduce this topic, uh, I should stress that gastrointestinal cancers represent a large group of cancers and account for nearly 20% of all cancers. So it's a very important area. And these cancers include uh, malignancies that develop from the esophagus, the stomach, including the gastroesophageal junction, liver, bile ducts, gallbladder, pancreas, small intestine, appendix, colon, rectum, and anal cancers, as well as uh, a fairly rare group of cancers known as neuroendocrine tumors. And you'll be hearing more about some of these different sites of disease. I think a critical aspect in terms of treatment that deserves emphasis is that, by and large, all of these cancers require a multidisciplinary team approach. And the team members include surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, pathologists, uh, including those who look at genomic changes within tumors. And uh, also there are individuals who need genetic counselors because they carry a risk of inherited uh, cancers. Uh, our team members also include radiologists, uh, including interventional radiologists and gastroenterologists. So when, when a person presents with a GI tumor, we need to determine 
up front which team members need to be initially involved to outline the best approach for each individual patient. Often we, we consider, besides uh, surgery, uh, the use of chemotherapy and radiation. And for a number of GI cancers, we are now using a treatment concept re referred to as neoadjuvant treatment, which means treatment given before surgery. And this often includes chemotherapy with or without radiation uh, followed by surgery. And in many cases, we also consider postoperative treatment uh, for our patients. I think where genomics has had quite a big uh, impact in treatment selection now is for people who have metastatic disease and usually these individuals require what we refer to as systemic therapy, and historically that has been uh, uh, chemotherapy. But more and more we're looking at the utilization of what's known as targeted or biological therapies, and then uh, uh, even more recently immunotherapy. Uh, for metastatic patients, however, uh, there are select individuals who might benefit from the use of radiation and surgery and also uh, utilization of what we call liver-directed therapy with our interventional radiologists. And um, all of these type of approaches uh, need to be carefully considered, as I mentioned, for each individual person at the time that they present with their cancer, but also over time, if there are changes, uh, reviewing uh, what type or modality of therapy may be uh, most appropriate for the individual. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, genomics, uh, one area uh, that we're looking carefully uh, add are those who might benefit from immunotherapy. And we do have some select markers that may guide us. However, I need to emphasize this is still a big area of research. But immunotherapy now is considered for patients with anal cancer, uh, particularly metastatic anal cancer, for those with uh, stomach or esophageal cancers, liver cancers, colon and rectal, and small intestinal cancers. Uh, unfortunately, not everyone will benefit, but part of our evaluation is to try to select people where immunotherapy perhaps might be a, a good choice. One example of how we use uh, genomic testing is uh, relative to what's referred to as the DNA mismatch repair pathway. And the, the way we report um, observations from this pathway are uh, referred to as either microsatellite instability tumors or deficient mismatch repair tumors. And this refers to the fact that there are microsatellites, which are short, repeating DNA sequences, sequences across the human genome. Now, these sequences tend to be prone to errors, and there are genes that can correct these errors. 
However, the, these mismatch repair genes, genes that can help uh, correct errors, can be altered. And they can be altered through what are known as germline mutations. And the germline refers to what we are born with. Or, more commonly, by um, a non-inherited loss of expression of these mismatch repair genes. And when these errors are not uh, corrected, they tend to repeat over and over again. And over time, these can lead to cancers. And these are the type of cancers that might benefit best from immunotherapy. And so it is a, a very important distinction to make. And uh, for many GI cancers now, we are routinely testing for this phenomenon of uh, uh, microsatellite instability or what's known as deficient mismatch repair. And it is an important uh, question to ask uh, your medical team uh, what type of tests are most important for for you to have. Is mismatch repair something that needs to be tested? Or are there other genetic changes that need to be uh, routinely tested for you? And what does it mean in terms of affecting your treatment choice? And you're going to hear some more about uh, these genomic tests and how they can uh, affect your treatment. And with that introduction, I think I'll conclude. And thanks for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was outstanding and just a wonderful way to start this program off and some wonderful information. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Mitash Borat. Dr. Borat is consultant, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Department of Internal Medicine. He's consultant, Department of Molecular Medicine, Mayo Clinic, and he's associate professor of medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Borat is going to discuss the role of precision medicine in targeted treatments. And he's going to give specific examples of how genomic testing directs treatment decisions for, for cholangiosarcoma and GIST. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Borad. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Uh, that was a very nice introduction by Dr. Benson with regards to the uh, growing role of uh, precision medicine and genetic profiling in gastrointestinal cancers. I will focus on two specific cancers. One is cholangiocarcinoma, and the second one is GIST, also known as gastrointestinal stromal tumor. Uh, and I will highlight some of the applications uh, that people are currently using already with regards to managing uh, patients who have these illnesses. So I'll start with cholangiocarcinoma. This is a cancer of the bile ducts, and these are structures uh, that are found within the liver, uh, outside of the liver, and near the liver. Uh, until recently, uh, we had been using only um, nonspecific chemotherapies to treat patients uh, who could not undergo surgery with these cancers. In recent years, we have found that these cancers carry a number of genetic abnormalities that can be targeted with specific drugs. Uh, one of the ones that is in later stage trials currently 
is an abnormality called uh, fibroblast growth factor receptor 2, also known as FGFR2 fusions, where the FGFR2 gene uh, fuses or joins together with another gene um, in the cancer, and this leads to uh, growth, proliferation of cells, and it turns out that because this is a very specific genetic event, one can use uh, targeted treatments, typically in the form of oral treatments that specifically hit uh, FGFR2. So these trials are ongoing at the time, and hopefully if the results remain as successful as they have been, we will see some of these become widely used clinically in the next few years. Uh, some other <laughs> genetic abnormalities have also been found in this cancer. I won't go into them in detail, but I'll just highlight what they are. These are mutations in genes called IDH1 and IDH2, and these cancers also have microsatellite instability, although at a lower rate, which is only in the 2 to 5% range. Okay, now I'll move on to GIST. So this is gastrointestinal stromal tumor. This is an unusual rare tumor of the gastrointestinal tract in that it is uh, a sarcoma, which is similar to uh, cancers of the bone and soft tissues. Um, these cancers uh, have been treated with targeted therapies for a number of years now, and in a way, this cancer is sort of the poster child of targeted therapies in gastrointestinal cancers. Uh, when patients are diagnosed with these cancers, uh, it would be helpful to evaluate them for mutations in two of the commonly involved genes. These are KIT, K-I-T, all capital letters, and PDGFRA, platelet-derived growth factor receptor A. I'll start with KIT. So here people look at different exons, which are positions in the gene, and if you have mutations in certain exons, you're more sensitive to certain drugs and resistant to others. The most common one is exon 11 uh, mutations, where 70% of mutations in the KIT gene occur. These tend to give a fair amount of sensitivity to a commonly used drug called imatinib or Gleevec. And these patients are less sensitive to other drugs used in this cancer, which are sunitinib and rigorafenib. On the other hand, if patients have mutations in exon 9, Imatinib doesn't work as well, and sumitinib and regorafenib work a bit better. Uh, similarly, for exon 13 and 14, which is a rare mutation, sumitinib may work better. And finally, exon 17 mutations of KIT, some of the newer drugs, uh, are, which are in clinical trials, are being evaluated. Uh, PDGFRA, so this is platelet drive growth factor receptor A is the other gene that can be mutated. And again, you have the story of the exons here. You have exon 12 mutations. Imatinib works well. And if you have exon 18 mutations, some of the drugs in clinical trials seem to be working a bit better. Uh, if patients don't have either of these genes that are mutated, the drugs I described don't work as much, and probably some of the newer drugs being considered should be uh, the thought in that case. So I've covered cholangiocarcinoma and GIST, and I'll be happy to take questions at the end of the session. I'll turn it back over to Dr. Mazda. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Bora. That was excellent and really um, addressing um, the two um, cancers that you were uh, addressing in terms of their important um, uh, options for them in terms of um, genomics. And thank you. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Jolene Hubbard. Um, and Dr. Um, Dr. Hubbard is Associate Professor of Oncology, Department of Oncology, Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, Gastrointestinal Cancers Program, and GI Advanced Fellowship Program Director, Mayo School of Graduate Education. And Dr. Um, Hubbard is going to be addressing communicating with the healthcare team about genomic testing, genomic testing and the older person living with GI cancers, and specific examples of how genomic testing directs um, decisions for pancreas cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hubbard. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Uh, it's great and honor to participate in this conference. So um, when communicating with your healthcare team about genomic testing, um, there's often two questions that arise. First is, when is genomic testing most appropriate? Um, and setting is, what in the timing of your disease course should genomic testing be performed? So in the, for, to answer the first question, when is it most appropriate? For um, most cancers that are able to be resected um, in their entirety and there has been no metastases, then often um, full genomic testing is not uh, necessary at that time, with the exception of looking for what Dr. Benson mentioned previously, microsatellite instability. Uh, specifically for colorectal cancers, there are clinical trials looking uh, to enroll patients who have had tumors removed that have the microsatellite instability. Another exception would be the GIST tumors that Dr. Borad mentioned previously, as sometimes this helps direct adjuvant therapy for our patients. Um, but for the most part, uh, the time uh, or when it's appropriate for the genomic testing is actually when patients have metastatic disease, meaning cancer is spread to other parts of their body. Um, and then oftentimes the genomic testing can be helpful for guiding treatment decisions in that situation. Now the appropriate timing is also a good question. Um, I often have my patients do the full genomic testing early on in the course of their disease. This often can be done by um, either cancer that's been resected previously, if that tissue is still available, we can perform the genomic testing on that tissue. Or sometimes if there is not available tissue, we have to have a, a biopsy uh, performed to actually get this information. Now the biopsy could be if patients had cancer previously and now it looks like it's recurred and they get a biopsy to confirm recurrence, then we can do the genomic testing on that tissue. But sometimes we have to do another biopsy um, to get enough tissue to perform this testing. So as I mentioned, um, this the the uh, the timing can be done at any time in the, uh, of the patient's disease. I often oftentimes get this testing done up front because it'll help me make treatment decisions, maybe not in the first-line setting always, but sometimes uh, I like to get patients prepared for um, if they need further treatments down the road, what options may be available. 
And oftentimes, if genomic testing is helpful, it's helpful to identify a specific mutation for which we may have a clinical trial that will target that mutation down the road. Uh, and when I talk about pancreatic cancer, I'll give an example of that. Um, Another question uh, that I was asked to address was about the older patient um, and geno genomic testing in older cancer patients. And this basically is the same recommendations as it is for younger patients. Uh, there's no age limit for uh, the vast majority of our clinical trials, so it's important to have this genomic testing done to identify uh, patients for clinical trials no matter what age. In addition, uh, the microsatellite instability, the frequency of that, um, particularly in colorectal cancer, tends to increase with age. And so it is very important to test for microsatellite instability among patients with all age, specifically for older adults, as this may identify the patients that are eligible for immunotherapy at some point in the course of their disease. And again, I can stress the importance of, of having all patients, no matter what age, uh, undergo genomic testing, even if um, um, patients may not think that they want to participate in a clinical trial, if they have uh, a unique opportunity um, that's identified by genomic testing, I think that should be offered to the patient. Now, a specific example for uh, pancreatic cancer you know, uh, in general, the genomic testing doesn't, has not been terribly successful for pancreatic cancer as the majority of the mutations that drive pancreatic cancer, uh, such as mutations in KRAS or P53, we don't have drugs to treat these driver mutations yet. However, uh, they can identify uh, other more rare mutations in pancreatic cancer that we may have a drug to target. Um, specifically, the BRCA2 mutation um, can be uh, um, associated with breast cancer, but also has been found to be in a small portion of patients with pancreatic cancer. Now, this is important testing uh, to identify these patients as, uh, for number one, it has implications for other family members to be tested, but number two may also open up an opportunity for patients to participate in a clinical trial using what we call a PARP inhibitor, which is a specific drug targeting the vulnerabilities associated with the BRCA mutation cancers. So it's very important to identify these patients. Another specific example is the HER2 overexpression, and this is something that Dr. Yeager will go into um, in more detail. HER2 is typically associated with breast cancer, but you every once in a while can find a small um, subset of patients that have HER2 overexpression for pancreas cancer, and they would be a candidate for a clinical trial called MyPathway, which is looking at a combination of agents that can directly be applied to patients with HER2 overexpression. In addition, looking for um, the rare patients with microsatellite instability associated pancreatic cancers 
is very important uh, to, again, identify patients for uh, immunotherapy at some point in the future. So I think even though pancreatic cancer does not have a great track record for identifying patients for clinical trials, there are um, a, a small subset of patients that will have specific mutations that I think it's very important to identify uh, as, it, uh, as it helps us look for clinical trial opportunities for these patients. Uh, so I will now uh, turn the, uh, the call back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hubbard. That was really excellent and so comprehensive. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker um, is Dr. Rohner um, um, Yeager. And Dr. Yeager is... Um, sorry. Uh, Dr. Yeager... Um, is a um, medical oncologist, gastrointestinal oncology service, assistant attending physician, Department of Medicine, Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Yeager is going to address tips uh, to manage common side effects, specific examples of how genomic testing directs treatment decisions for GI neuroendocrine tumors, cancer of the appendix and rectal cancer, and what's new on the horizon for GI cancers. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Yeager. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be on the call and to speak with everyone today. Um, some of what I have to say will reiterate what you've said, what's been heard before, um, but I'll put it through the lens of the several cancers that Dr. Mesner mentioned. So I wanted to start first by taking a step back to think about what are we looking for when we are um, testing tumors for genomic alterations. And there are really two key questions. The first is, are there any genomic changes that we can identify that likely are a driver in the tumor? So we think of cancer developing through a multi-step process where a normal cell gets mutations over time that allow it to grow uncontrollably and that allow it to grow even in a situation where nutrients are poor and there are other signals around telling the cell not to grow. Those alterations that allow the cancer to grow are what we call driver mutations or driver alterations while other alterations that are picked up along the way when the cell is dividing and um, getting mutations we call passengers. So the first question is, is there a driver alteration? Is there something that has changed that allowed the cancer to grow that we can identify based on the mutations that we see? And then the second question is, is there a match therapy for that driver alteration? Do we have a drug, either an approved drug or a drug in clinical trials, that is specific for that alteration and that may be able to turn off that alteration? So right now, the use of genomics and precision medicine is limited to cases where we can identify driver alteration and we have a match therapy. But we continue to try to study what are the drivers in those cases where we don't have a driver alteration and what new therapies can we bring to those cases where we can identify a change and we don't have a therapy yet. What we do know, and as mentioned by Dr. Hubbard, um, that the um, driver alterations are actually stable over time. So these occur early and when the cancer develops, and they're there throughout the course of the disease so that you can analyze tissue from any time um, so that if a patient had a biopsy at diagnosis, that can be submitted for genomic alteration analysis, even if that's several years before you're looking for treatment. Or you can an analyze a metastasis with a new biopsy right before you're looking for a targeted therapy. We do know that drivers 
are different between different cancers, and so we need to actually look at each tumor to figure out what is altered there and if we can go after it. So I was going to take a few moments to talk in more detail about colorectal cancer. So in colorectal cancer, some target therapies are already approved, and we use genomic analysis of tumors to guide who is most likely to respond to drugs that target a receptor called the epidermal growth factor receptor, or EGFR. And by using genomic analysis, we can enrich the population we treat and increase the chance that patients receiving these drugs will respond. Besides this group, we have some emerging treatments for several molecular subsets of colorectal cancer. The first is a group that have mutations in a gene called BRAF, B-R-A-F, with a mutation most commonly described as V600E, meaning a mutation at the 600 position that substitutes a uh, amino acid V for another amino acid E. And this is important because we have targeted drugs that can bind to BRAF and can block it. So BRAF is a protein that signals for cell growth. The V600E mutation turns on BRAF so that it is on all the time and telling the cells all the time we should divide. It's, it's a good time to grow. And so if we could turn off that signal, we may be able to stop the cancer from growing. Recent trials have looked at targeted therapy combinations for colorectal tumors with this mutation, and there is now a trial that is looking for FDA approval of a targeted therapy combination specifically for this group. BRFE600E alterations are seen in about 8% of metastatic colorectal cancer, and so while a small group, it still applies to many patients. Another group that is an emerging subset where we may have treatments was also mentioned by Dr. Hubbard. It's a group called HER2 Amplified. Here we have about 3% of colorectal cancer patients who have this alteration. And what HER2 is a receptor on the surface. So it's a protein that sits on the surface and senses what's going on outside. And it can signal to the cell that it's a good time to divide and grow. In the setting of HER2 amplification, there are just a lot of receptors on the surface, so the cell senses that it's a good time to grow all the time. And HER2 amplification, while not so common in colorectal cancer, it's quite common in breast cancer, so we can learn from the experience there where there are many FDA-approved treatments for HER2 amplified breast cancer. So one of the things we have learned is that when we give the, the FDA-approved treatments in colon cancer as single agents, they don't appear to be effective, but clinical trials looking at combinations suggest that using combinations may be able to um, shrink the tumors of patients who have heard to amplified colon cancer. And there are currently ongoing trials, both with new drugs that, that target HER2, as well as um, with combinations um, that are looking for approval. The next group of tumors I want to talk about is GI neuroendocrine tumors. As Dr. Benson mentioned, this is a rare group of cancers. Here, the tumors develop from a what we call a neuroendocrine cell rather than the typical cells in the GI tract that are involved in digestion. These are cells that are scattered throughout the GI tract and can coordinate the um, uh, contractions in the GI tract and release of hormones. Here, the cells are defined by having a receptor on their surface called somatostatin, and the mainstay of treatment is actually a targeted therapy because it can bind to the receptor and turn it off. Pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors are different than many other neuroendocrine tumors and respond better to targeted therapies, and there are FDA-approved targeted therapies 
for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors in particular. So unfortunately, targeted therapies are not curative. They may control a cancer, they may shrink it, but at some point, the tumor outsmarts the treatment and progresses. Here, genomic changes um, can be can be important in understanding what's going on. And what actually happens here is a game of evolution. So like I said, the tumor, when it develops, has alterations that allow it to grow, and those alterations are stable over time. When we give targeted therapies, we are blocking whatever allowed those cells to grow, and any cells that may be there that may have other alterations that modify the dependence on that growth signal are any cells that can get a new alteration, allowing them to be less dependent on that growth signal, are more likely to survive. And we know from studies, particularly in colorectal cancer, that this actually has some implications for treatment. So the first is that the population that survives the target therapy is not necessarily what we would think of as the fittest population, meaning the tumor cells that are able to divide most frequently. So when we stop the targeted therapy because it's not working, that population may not be the one that remains dominant and may actually recede so that over time there may be a uh, change in the mix-up of the cancer back to the dominant population we saw before. So in patients who have a good response to targeted therapy and can have a long break, maybe on some regular chemotherapy, in those circumstances, we may be able to rechallenge with the target therapy and get a response again. The second time we treat with the target therapy, the response is often shorter as the already, uh, uh, resist resistance has already developed, but it may take time to emerge. So patients who really have a very nice response may be able to have a good response again with a rechallenge. The second implication is that if things are changing to allow the tumor to survive the targeted therapy, we may be able to figure out what those things are, things are and actually go after them. So patients may, at progression, when they be, that meaning the tumor is growing through a targeted therapy, may have analysis of the tumor again, which may identify a new alteration. Um, and there are many uh, stories of patients receiving new combination therapies based on these alterations to overcome resistance. So finally, I want to take a moment to talk about managing side effects. So while we're talking about targeted therapies, these treatments can affect both the tumor cells as well as normal cells. Wherever that target is expressed, the cells are vulnerable, and patients can have uh, side effects that are real and can be difficult despite the treatment being targeted. These side effects tend to be different than those we see with traditional chemotherapy, so it's less common to have nausea or hair loss or lowering of the blood counts. However, the um, side effects can be significant and can vary for the different drugs. And so it's important to discuss with your doctor any side effects you have. Your doctor may be able to give you uh, medicine to uh, modulate those side effects and help maintain treatment with the targeted therapy. Thank, thank you very much, and I look forward to taking any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Yeager. That was really outstanding, quite the tour de force, lots covered. And now we do have time for questions. Before we take the questions, however, I'm just going to say a few words about the services you can access from Cancer Care. So please have your questions ready because then we're going to go right into the Q&A. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and you will in your evaluations be getting more information about, about the programs that we offer. But just briefly, we do offer um, both practical and financial assistance, um, and we also offer counseling services with um, professionally trained master's level oncology social workers. And the counseling is either on the telephone 
or it's online. Um, and I should say we have a, we also have many groups. We have a number of telephone support groups as well as online support groups. And the nice thing about the online support groups, we have 138 of them at the moment, and actually those are available. And they're on different types of cancers and for different populations, so for caregivers, um, for people living with a particular type of cancer. And I should say that those particular groups are very accessible to people internationally because there's no time. They, they actually, people can post any time of the day or night. They are professionally facilitated as well. Um, and um, we also will take your questions or concerns um, both on the telephone. We have a hopeline as well as basically online as well. So there is no way you can't reach us to some extent. And for our international participants or people in the U.S. who prefer using the Internet, you can access our services by going to our our homepage, and actually it lists um, how you can get those services. And the only services that are not available internationally are our financial assistance programs. Everything else is available to everyone. We are technically a national organization, but I do know that many of you could do contact us, and you certainly will try to help you as much as possible. So with that being said, um, and we do have many of these workshops, and we do have a number of publications and fact sheets that you can order. So with that being said, now we can take questions. So um, I'm going to ask um, Sandra to explain to you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get your question at the end of the call, I will give you information about how to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take right now. So um, Sandra? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then 1. And so we have a question from one of our online participants for Dr. Benson. Um, so what is the difference between genetic cancer testing and genomic cancer testing? So if you could say something about that, Dr. Benson. Oh, I, I think we're really talking about the same thing. Um, but it is important to distinguish, uh, and I, I briefly mentioned this idea of germline testing uh, versus tumor-specific testing. So in germline testing, we do obtain a blood sample to determine if there are any genetic changes that represent an inherited uh, condition that uh, might lead to the development of a cancer. And in uh, colorectal cancer, for example, Lynch syndrome, uh, which uh, uh, is a syndrome that can uh, result in microsatellite instability, for example, and lead to cancers, is an important syndrome to uh, identify. Uh, but then uh, uh, within tumors, there can be, as you've heard, uh, a number of genetic changes, including mutations in genes that through the process of mutations can lead to the development of cancer. And one of the challenges is tumors uh, can have multiple different genetic changes over time. And uh, that has led to the idea that, well, maybe we need to be sampling patients' tumors over time, looking for these genetic changes that evolve with the hope that there can be a treatment that's linked to these genetic changes we see within tumors. 
Excellent. Um, thank you. And um, there's another question for you. Um, Uh, the question is, um, my doctor recently found benign polyps with a history of colon cancer. I'm afraid these polyps will become malignant. Should I have them removed now or watch them and continue to be screened? Well, in uh, general, uh, the gastroenterologist removes polyps when they are identified. And there are polyps that can transform uh, to cancers. Not all polyps do so. But uh, I, I would emphasize the current standard of care is to remove polyps, uh, evaluate them under the microscope, and by doing so, uh, we can help prevent uh, cancers from developing in the first place. And one of the observations that the incidence of colon cancer in older individuals is declining is probably related to the fact that we do colonoscopy screening and remove polyps before they can become a tumor, a cancerous tumor. Thank you. Um, and our next question is for Dr. Borad. Um, when being treated with a different drug targeting the same mutation, for example, EGFR, does that drug have a better chance at a response rather than being retreated with the same drug that builds up tolerance. Sorry, I don't think I understood the question completely. Should I read it again? And it's coming from the uh, uh, Cholangian Sarcoma uh, um, Carcinoma Foundation. So when being treated with a different drug targeting the same mutation, for example, EGFR, or they've actually written FGFR, so I'm not sure if that. Yeah, that's does that yeah. drug, FGFR, okay, FGFR. Um, does that drug have a better chance at a response rather than being retreated with the same drug that builds up a tolerance? Yeah, so generally when um, resistance uh, has developed to one drug, uh, that doesn't mean that whole class of drugs uh, cannot be used. Um, and uh, there are a number of instances where different FGFR inhibitors have worked when patients have previously been treated with uh, FGFR inhibitors. So I think that's an area of exploration right now and certainly would be a possibility at least. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Hubbard from one of our online participants. Um, so should I consider participating in a, in a pancreatic clinical trial? How do I find more information? Yeah, so there's a number of different ways that you can do this. And I think the first step is to uh, talk with your oncologist about any clinical trials that may be available in your area. And I, because clinical trials in general rec um, require treatment at whatever center you're participating in, finding one closer to home um, is often um, the most convenient for, for patients. And so I would talk with your um, local oncologist first. Your local oncologist may also have insight, if you're not at a tertiary care center, which tertiary care centers, meaning academic universities, um, may have clinical trial uh, opportunities. 
and oftentimes uh, we, the oncologists at the academic centers, know each other and can oftentimes touch base with another oncologist at another center to say, hey, I have this uh, patient here. Do you have any exciting clinical trials available? The other um, really good way you could do this is to use um, the clinicaltrials.gov website. So you just enter in www.clinicaltrials, all one word, in lower caps, .gov. And then you um, are able to enter in search terms, uh, for instance, uh, BRAF mutant colon cancer, and um, see what clinical trials will be available. Each trial lists the um, eligibility criteria for that trial to make sure that you would be a candidate. But the other really nice thing is if you scroll all the way to the bottom of the trial page, it will have um, the centers avail that have the, the clinical trial that um, is enrolling at which centers. So you can search by, you can go to your state and then um, look and see which centers in your state have that uh, trial open. And there's often a phone number which you can call them directly and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I've got stage you know, four colon cancer and I was interested in this trial, do you have an opening? So lots of different avenues to uh, pursue. There's oftentimes um, blogs or um, support uh, group websites or um, foundation websites that will have clinical trial opportunities available as well. Excellent. Thank you. And there's another question from our online participants. Um, for you, Dr. Hubbard, uh, my doctor recommended a celiac plexus block to manage my pain. Will the damage to my celiac nerve be permanent? So, excellent question. So, um, for patients um, to, with pancreatic cancer that have uh, pain in this specific area, and it's usually kind of the upper mid abdomen, uh, celiac plexus block can oftentimes prevent or uh, provide um, some good relief of the pain. It's typically not 100% relief, but it can significantly reduce the amount of pain. It's not terribly effective for all patients, and so we found um, probably about half of our patients experience a lot of benefit, uh, and the other half maybe less benefit and sometimes no benefit. But I do think it's worth trying as it's a good way to uh, reduce the amount of narcotic pain medication that the patient needs to take. Um, the celiac plexus block itself is um, uh, a very, you know, simple and benign procedure for most patients, and most patients won't have any other significant side effects of that nerve block other than having the pain relief. In general, um, these pain blocks typically provide relief on the order of three to six months, and sometimes you can have the, the pain block done again, uh, but it does not provide permanent relief. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And actually, another question for Dr. Borad. Um, can gastro gastrointestinal stromal tumors start anywhere in the GI tract and start outside the GI tract? Uh, they can start anywhere in the GI tract by the name, and this could be in the sort of stomach, the duodenum, uh, small bowel, etc. Um, 
also given the name, they if it's somewhere outside of the GI tract, then that's another kind of sarcoma, not a gastrointestinal stromal tumor. Excellent, thank you. And um, we have a question from one of our telephone participants, so um, Sandra. Thank you, and our question comes from Emil S. Your line is open. I'm um, a 67-year-old man and had an endoscopy and colonoscopy recently and had polyps removed that were benign. Could I develop gastro cancers later on in life? They did find inflammation in my esophagus and stomach, but not the colon. Are there any preventive things that I can do to prevent these gastric cancers from developing later on uh, from the inflammation? And do, you, and do you recommend genetic testing now when I do not have any gastro cancers? Well, thank you, Emil. Excellent questions. Dr. Benson, do you want to address those questions? So uh, in terms of the uh, risk of uh, cancer and intervals of screening and whether genetic testing should be done, it's important that uh, your doctor carefully review a family history to see if uh, there is an indication that you might be at risk. Uh, polyps are not unusual findings, and it's important to speak with the gastroenterologist as to the type of polyps. Are these polyps that could uh, form cancers if left uh, intact uh, in the stomach? Uh, but it's also important to know uh, when follow-up should be. When should the next upper endoscopy be performed and colonoscopy, looking to make sure that there are no recurrent polyps? And that interval of time can vary. For some people, if the gastroenterologist is concerned, there may be repeat endoscopy as soon as six months later. But for others, it might not be for five years. And so each individual has to have this discussion with the gastroenterologist, including whether there is any chance there's an inherited condition. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Yeager. Um, um, a question about appendix cancer and information about clinical trials and research that's being done. If you could address that. Sure. So. Appendix cancer has been traditionally treated as the appendix of the colon and has been treated similarly to colorectal cancers. We now know that the appendix is different. Um, we've known for a while that clinically its behavior is different and it has a proclivity to involve the abdominal cavity um, rather than more distance spread compared to the colon. Um, in terms of the genomics, we know the genomics are different in the appendix, so a lot of the early steps to cancer development are different. Um, and it hasn't yet translated into new targeted therapy, but we do know that there are some genomic alterations that are primarily seen in the appendix, and some of those are associated with doing better. Um, and so we're still learning the how to interpret the genomic um, genomics in appendix cancer and how to go after them. Um, in terms of clinical trials, there's a range of clinical trials, from trials that are focused on um, 
local regional disease where patients with appendix cancer may have disease within the abdomen alone. And so going after that, sometimes in a multidisciplinary way with surgery or other modalities. And there are trials looking at um, combination treatments, some that are targeted, some that are immunotherapy, which as Dr. Hubbard mentioned, um, we can discuss with your doctor what what trials may make sense, um, and clinicaltrials.gov is a good resource to see what trials are available. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and our next telephone question, um, Sandra. Thank you. And our question comes from Tony H. Your line is open. Hi. I was wondering if you can discuss NTRAC fusions. Um, I know it's newly emerging, but what we know about NTRAC fusions in colon. Okay, thank you for that question. Dr. Benson, do you want to start with that one? I, I can just say, and others may want to chime in, that uh, fusions are uh, an area of interest. They tend to be fairly uncommon, but there are actually drugs now under development that target uh, these different fusions that are, are being uh, observed. And uh, this is one of the aspects of doing what's called next generation sequencing, where there is uh, extensive uh, testing of tumors, uh, looking for, uh, in some cases, looking at hundreds of different genes to identify whether they're mutations or, or these uh, fusions that may be appropriate targets for treatment. Uh, so uh, certainly there are clinical trials for for these type of changes. Thank you. Anyone else want to add? Yes. Yeah. Hi, Jonah Yeager. Um, so there is, just like uh, Dr. Benson mentioned, a lot of excitement about targeting NTRAC fusions because there are drugs that have been tested that suggest that the, the fusions are very sensitive to the drugs. They occur in less than 1% of colorectal cancer, and they appear to occur primarily in patients who have tumors in the first part of the colon, what we call the right side. So the part of the colon, if we think of it as a U, as a part that um, is described as either cecum, ascending colon, or the transverse colon, the part of the U that goes up. And they're actually more common in microsatellite unstable tumors, so the microinstability or the mismatch repair tumors that you've heard about. So it's very rare, and it occurs in only a subset. So we're only now trying, starting to understand who, who are the patients that develop these fusions and how are they developing. When we find them, they give us another target. Many of these patients may not need treatment. They may they may have uh, response to immunotherapy. They may not have metastatic disease, and the fusion is found by chance with sequencing, as it appears to often occur in this group that uh, is microsatellite unstable. But when it, patients have metastatic disease and an NTRAC fusion is found, it's a target where there are drugs that are um, uh, undergoing clinical development that appear to have activity kind of across the board, irrespective of where the tumor developed. Um, and track fusions can occur outside of the colon. Um, I think the clinical trials included a patient with a GIST tumor that had an NTRAC fusion who did very well with treatment. So they can kind of occur broadly, but they're not particularly enriched in the GI tract. They're seen more in um, uh, secretary uh, tumors of the head and neck and uh, of the breast where they're more typical. 
excellent. Thank you. Wow, that's yeah, excellent. Great question. Great answer. Thank you. Um, you know, we have a few minutes more, and I guess maybe we should just elaborate further on, and, and anyone, all of you can weigh in. I'll just take you in the order that you presented. But I guess just because the topic today is on genomics and GI cancers, so uh, in terms of the future, what can people expect? And, and that's kind of a, a, a rather broad question to ask. But Dr. Benson, do you want to start, and we'll just have everybody just weigh in on it. I, I know Dr. Yeager has as well, but Dr. Benson. Well, I think an important message is that we, we've we made phenomenal progress, and this progress has come from work with clinical trials and, importantly, the collection of tumors from patients who participate in these trials to enhance our understanding of the biology of tumors but very importantly, to help develop drugs and to see the activity of these drugs uh, for patients where we identify these uh, genetic changes. So I think an important message is to discuss with your oncology team whether you are eligible for a clinical trial because so many of these are doing work evaluating individual patients' tumors and and looking for what may even be, as we just discussed with fusions, may be relatively rare events. But if they're found, people uh, can often have just uh, excellent responses to drugs that are targeted to this particular change noticed in a, in a tumor. Uh, it's also important for people to know that although we're doing the, these type of tests on tumors more and more frequently, there are still many patients for whom we do not find a match for treatment. But we do hope by continuing to test people and looking for genomic changes, we'll, we'll be able to enhance our ability to treat more people in a, a much more refined way based on tumor biology. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Dr. Bora, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I would echo the comments by Dr. Benson. And um, I would add that uh, an area that I see coming um, and emerging in this area would be the use of uh, liquid biopsies, um, which people will start using more and more uh, to augment tissue biopsies and maybe also use in place of it. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Hubbard? Yeah, just to build on um, what Dr. Benson had previously uh, mentioned, you know, we're based on a lot of research um, that has been done thus far, you know, we're finding out more and more about the biology of individual cancers and, and what's really driving these tumors. So, uh, a good example is for colorectal cancer, it's not just colon cancer anymore. We may have uh, BRAF mutant colon cancer is a, a much different um, behaving type of colon cancer um, than a BRAF wild type um, cancer um, or a cancer that, ha uh, that has microsatellite instability. So we're starting more and more to think about the 
um, the individual biology of these different subsets of tumors, and I think that's where the future will be trending or trending more and more uh, is we'll be targeting more so mutations and processes that drive the cancer rather than this kind of one-size-fits-all um, for, um, for different cancer types. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And Dr. Yeager? Yeah, I would really echo, actually, everything that's said. Um, I think that we're starting to see that there's really so much complexity and everyone's treatment has to be individualized. And it's really an interplay of where the tissue develop, where the tumor developed and what are the alterations. So BRAF is a great example where BRAF alterations occur in many tumor types. Um, and BRAF is clearly a driver. It's a driver in colon cancer just as it is in um, melanoma or other tumor types that commonly have BRAF alterations, and yet it's different to target BRAF in colon versus in melanoma. So there's a complexity that I don't think we appreciated when we got into it of so many layers, not just where is the tumor, um, but what are the genomic alterations, and even within that, maybe where within the organ did the tumor develop. And then as um, Dr. Borat mentioned, the use of liquid biopsies, which is getting a sample of blood and looking for um, DNA fragments that may have mutations, can actually provide real-time guidance on what's going on. So I think over time we're going to refine our treatment and may maybe be able to be much more dynamic in how we treat patients to act on, you know, uh, what are the changes? Is the tumor responding? Is it shedding less tumor DNA into the blood? Or is it shedding something that may lead to resistance and can we go after that? Wow. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You have been, what a phenomenal group you are. Um, you can't hear us applauding, but you are just amazing. And I also want to thank all of our participants for asking really such great questions, both online and on the telephone, that really enhanced the call. I do want to remind you this was a one-hour program, and we are soon to stop. But I did say I would let you know how you can get, if you have questions, how to get them answered. So we often recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute. Um, and actually, they have a toll-free number, 1-800-422-6237, um, and that will be sent to all of you actually in the evaluations. But they also have a wonderful live chat feature on their website, www.cancer.gov. Now, you've also been given information about how to get more information about clinical trials at www.cancer.gov. Gov, and we'll be giving you that information as well, so you'll be getting all that in, in, from all of you. I also don't want to sidestep your healthcare team because they actually know you the best, and so it is a good idea to speak to your healthcare team about any questions you may have to start with because they may have some, take the information you learned today, bring it back to your healthcare team, ask perhaps in more informed questions or feel like you can ask these questions now. Um, that's really important too. That's a really important reason why we do these programs so that you can actually use your healthcare team more in terms of getting some of your questions answered. Um, we also certainly encourage you if you want to take advantage of any of our counseling services or other services of cancer care to go ahead and call us. And again, you will be getting all the details of how, what the phone numbers are to call us here at Cancer Care on our website as well. It's on all the materials I think you've gotten so far. I also just in concluding want to mention that clearly um, dealing with um, all of this new information, um, also dealing with uh, GI cancers and genomics, um, people often feel a bit sort of um, like they don't know everything and they feel a little bit kind of stressed out or anxious and 
I do want to offer to all of you that Kipsker now has a meditation app. People kind of love it. You'll be getting information about that. Um, take advantage of it if you wish, if it's something that would work for you. Um, but it does have a lot of information in there as well as exercises, relaxation exercises, meditation exercises that you can take advantage of. So with all that being said, I want to thank you for your participation today. This has been a phenomenal program, and um, I want to wish you all a very fine day. And don't want anyone to feel on this program that you're alone. You now know that you're part of this whole community of support, not just from Cancer Care, but all the other organizations that have helped to make this possible, and we're all here to help you. So thank you all, and have a good day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.